Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us both here in the room and if you're watching or listening. In this program, we're going to be talking about what happens to people, to cultures, to patterns of human interaction in public and in private when we encounter revolutionary new technologies. I'm sure it'll be a fun conversation, and we have some wonderful guests. So I'll introduce the guests who are here with us in this first segment. Jenna Sup-Montgomery is an assistant professor with a joint appointment in the University of Iowa Department of Religious Studies and the Department of Communication Studies. And thank you, Jenna, for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And at the far end, we have David Dowling, associate professor in the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. So thank you, David. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. As we all know, the rate of innovation in the modern age can be breathtaking, and we've all experienced those moments where some new thing is developed that just kind of makes you gasp and think, oh, what will come next? Well, that's been the case in uh, human history since the beginning. And if we look back just a couple hundred years with the development of things like uh, a few hundred years, you know, we had the printing press, we have railroads coming along, cars, uh, you know, satellites, who knows what. There's always something. And here tonight, we're going to be talking about technologies that relate to the way we communicate with one another. And um, I want to start, I think, with Jenna. Uh, Jenna, I'd like to begin by looking at the, the big, big picture. Uh, what are the larger implications of the adoptions of new technologies? Um, how do they change the ways individuals interact, the sharing of information, the movement of people and ideas from place to place, and what does it all mean to the shape and the form of a culture? It's a great question. It's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I look at in my research is what makes a new technology new, and uh, um, a kind of um, usual way that we answer this question is that there's an innovation in some sort of technological capacity we have. So you mentioned the big ones, the printing press, railroads, telegraph. Um, but when you look at how new technologies are actually adopted in different cultures, the story changes a little bit, and we don't actually see that this moment of newness is really about the machine itself. Um, it's actually in some ways about the sorts of excitement or social energy that come to surround the machine and the kinds of social change that erupt as the technology emerges into a culture. So let me give you an example. The usual way that we tell the story of print in America is that, um, oh, in Europe in the 1400s, Gutenberg invents this printing press, and suddenly we have mass printing of the Bible and an eruption of new kinds of thinking and the emergence of the nation state and the dissolution of a religious canon. And all of these things kind of unfold once the printing press appears. Um, but that was not our first printing press in the world. Prints existed in China for hundreds of years before that. We have evidence of woodblock prints in China from the 600s. We have movable type print in China in um, the beginning of the, um, I think it's 1043 or something like that. Um, and what we see in China is not the development of a religious reformation or the dissolution of, an, of the canon. In fact, in China, um, this early print technology was used to print um, a set of canonical texts for the Chinese people to take civil service exams. So it had the sort of opposite effect there, which to me says, <laughs> talk about technology, the promises and perils. Um, <laughs> to me, it tells us that 
Um, when we're looking at technological change, we're not necessarily looking at the invention of a technology and then a series of cultural changes that emerge. We're looking at a confluence of changes that come together where the technology and the human actors are participating in a moment of change in which the technology may be a cause, but it might also be an effect. Mm -hmm. Um, as we look at, at some of the things that we think of as technological advances right now, um, how does this, what does it make your mind uh, uh, turn to when you, when you look at the next new iPhone thing or, you know, some, some new communication tool that's come along? Um, what is the first thought you have? Is it about the thing or is it about, oh my gosh, this is going to change the way people react to one another? Um, my, my first impulse is to listen for how people think it will change how we interact. Mm. So um, I do a lot of work looking at the history of networks. And you hear a lot of talk about what networks are doing for us now. So sometimes you might hear that, um, oh, the internet will make us into a global village and we're all going to be near neighbors with each other and now we can crowdsource the solution to poverty and hunger and um, disease. Um, or you might hear the opposite, right? Those are the promises of the internet. You might hear about the perils of the internet. This is where I tend to lean. You know, oh, now that kids these days bring iPhones to dinner, no one knows how to have a real conversation, right? Um, those same concerns were actually voiced about 150 years ago um, with our first electric communication network, the telegraph. Yeah. The same sets of promises and perils. So people thought that um, with the telegraph, which provided what they understood to be instantaneous communication. It took about six hours for a message to get across the Atlantic Ocean, but at that time, that was <laughs> very fast. Um, people thought this was going to create a universal community that would be joined into Americans. Many Americans thought this would create a universal community that was going to be joined in one religion and one way of being. Um, President Buchanan, in the first uh, transatlantic telegram that he sent, said that the telegraph would make the nations of Christendom spontaneously unite. Um, and, um, and similarly, people were concerned that having a telegraph operator mediate their conversations with each other would interrupt the sincerity of person-to-person um, -person interactions. And so when I think about these new technologies emerging, I'm constantly shocked at how often the promises and perils that we're concerned about remain the same. And they're always, in some ways, about the quality of human interaction. Mm -hmm. Well, in some communication we had before we started this program, you said that we should talk about the role of failure in what we think of as technological progress. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that interests me is when we think about technological change, we often um, understand it to be this kind of steady march of progress that sort of leaps from one innovation to the next innovation. And what we often find instead is that new technologies rely on very old technologies. So if you... Um, ask someone who's in their Facebook network, often it'll be their high school friends. That's a very old-fashioned kind of network, you know, that you're friends from a, a place that you've shared um, with others. Um, um, we often also see that, um, I totally lost my train of thought. Uh, well, we were just talking about failures. Failures. Yeah, uh -huh. Talk mm -hmm. about a failure. Um, it's very dangerous <laughs> to admit in public that failure sits at the heart of your research. Um, <laughs> Um, so not only do we not see progress as a kind of linear movement forward, but often these stories of technological innovation are filled with really fabulous stories of things falling apart. And we don't have a way to talk about that necessarily when we talk about technological innovation because we're so focused on success. So um, in my studies of the transatlantic telegraph, for example, 
um, the first attempt failed completely. There was no successful communication. The second attempt, and this is the attempt I really love, um, they got it going, and suddenly um, the United States was able to communicate with Britain. This was a very big deal in, the 18, in 1858. And in fact, they threw huge celebrations up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. There were fireworks displays and, and speeches, and buildings were lit up, and they threw a huge feast after a long parade in New York City for Cyrus Field, who had sort of masterminded this project. And while Cyrus Field is sitting at dinner, he got the last telegrams to be sent at that cable. And they were so garbled, he couldn't even decipher them. Um, so this, this technology that lasted for 28 days, this was the technology that President Buchanan thought would unite the nations of Christendom. You know, this was the technology that people um, published newspaper articles about how it would end distance and end war. And I think telling the stories of those moments when everything falls apart is an important way to understand how these networks get shaped. Mm -hmm. The same way that we often talk about networks simply as modes of connection. Um, but what we actually find is that our disconnections, the people who aren't in our networks, shape how our networks work just as much. Mm -hmm. The way that um, enmity or gossip actually shape our social networks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you also, in addition to teaching in the area of communications, you teach in the, de the uh, Department of Religious Studies. Can you tell us anything about how religion shaped in the past or currently shapes the way people uh, approach new technologies? Yeah, so in my research, um, especially looking at the history of the telegraph, it wasn't strange at that time for um, people to talk about the power of technological innovation in religious terms. So it was very normal for American missionaries to set off to distant lands and assume that they were actually doing God's work by bringing along an early mechanical washing machine or, um, or Morse's telegraph machine, for example. That was understood to be part and parcel of the work of Christianizing the globe. Um, and it wasn't strange to American ears to hear that a presidential figure would think of the telegraph as a way to unite um, a global Christian culture. Um, that would sound very strange to many of us now. But I do wonder if some of the um, ideas about what technology can do for us, this idea that it's going to produce a community that we value because it's a group of neighbors caring for each other, or that it will make us able to communicate in ways that are sincere, if that doesn't in some way echo with these early sorts of religious, perhaps particularly Protestant ideas. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I'd like to turn to David now. Hi, thank Hi. you for being here, David. And I understand a lot of your work centers on publishing and how different mm -hmm. forms of publishing over time affect the, the content that's created for these, uh, for these uh, publishing venues. Maybe you can yeah. launch off into that. Sure. Um, well, publishers have, have always been uh, dependent to, to one extent or another on, on a business model. Um, you can't be in the publishing industry unless you have a plan going forward for how to make revenue one way or another. And of course, in print journalism, uh, from, from its earliest days, the source of revenue has been advertising. Um, and it, far and away, you know, once we see the, the penny press kick in, um, it, suddenly publishers start to realize that with the advent of technologies that can produce papers in, in such numbers, it's at such cheap cost, right? The, the best thing to do then is to make revenue through selling ad space as opposed to increasing price per paper and making uh, marginal profit off of the, the consumer. So selling each paper at cost, hence the penny press, 
um, essentially giving it away free, was a way for them to make revenue through advertising. Well, what's happened is with the digital age coming on now, print obviously has dropped off. We don't see people carrying around print newspapers as, of course, a fraction as much as, as we did maybe in the 1970s or 1980s, um, or 1950s for that matter, 1850s. Um, <laughs> Tocqueville, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville came over from France in the 1830s, correct me if I'm wrong, was it 30s? Uh, okay. Um, and one of the things that he did note was in his democracy in America was just what a paper-reading society we were. Every coffee table he looked at, there was a newspaper. Every conversation was usually then right gravitating around something going on in that newspaper, whether it was at hand or whether people were circulating those ideas around. So the newspaper has, has had this like incredibly uh, uh, central place in our country, uh, as well as, as others throughout the globe. But what's happened is with that business model shift, publishing then changes, the nature of journalism itself changes. So as print declines, digital comes on, we have something called newspaperdeathwatch.com, <laughs> which I would re really alert you to if you wanted to see just how many papers have dropped off the face of the earth since the digital age and the revolution thereof. And it's astonishing. But what's, what's really going to tell the tale, at least for me, is that for the first time, and this just happened last year, for the first time in human history, okay, in media history, I should say, we've had now ad revenues for digital exceed that of print. That just happened last year. Also, for the first time in media history, the biggest, most valuable company on the face of the earth is now Google and not Apple. Okay? That happened about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago. So the sea changes is, is upon us. What does this mean for publishers? Publishers are now in a tizzy because most publishing is digital. Okay? So if you're a digital publisher, what do you do now that something called ad blockers is alive and well and is skyrocketing? Okay, so ad blockers, 20, 2009, there were 10 million people using ad blockers. 10 million in 2009. In 2016, today, there are 236 million people using ad blockers. If I'm a publisher, I'm saying goodbye to my ad revenue, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. What do I do, right? How do I make money? Well, there, there are a couple of responses to this. One is ads have gone native. There's something called native advertising. You've, if, if I showed you an example, you would know it exactly. We've all seen them. These are things that show up in your Facebook feed that look like you know, a post, it's really an ad, okay? And it's usually targeted to the type of uh, person you are in terms of the clicks, the likes that you've made. They've done some target marketing on you to figure out how to position that native ad just to you. So, for example, they can figure out if you've just had a baby, right? So, um, if so, they're going to take a look at your click patterns, and they're going to put in a little ad for a baby jogger in your Facebook feed. And you're thinking, oh, one of my Facebook friends posted. No, that's an ad. <laughs> that's that's called a digital. That's called a native ad. Okay, so advertising has gone native on the one hand, but it's also gone towards something called content marketing, and that is where we don't initially see a difference between editorial content, right, real journalism that's made, and the ad. Okay, so storytelling precedes the advertising message in content marketing. That's the easiest definition of content marketing I can give you. But for people who are old like me. We know that 
that's what infomercials used to be, okay? That's also what those things that look like articles, right, in the New York Times maybe travel section but have a tiny little print next to it, this is an advertisement, that's content marketing, okay? These are ways to get around ad blocking, quite simply. So if I create content, right, that looks editorial, ad blockers won't necessarily cut that out. Now what we're seeing is a huge rise in the use of digital video ads. Um, it's up 42% um, just within the last year to $7.5 billion spent on digital video ads. It's an all-time high in the U.S. Uh, and again, 42% increase over the last year in uh, digital video ads. Obviously, with the rise of ad blockers, the rise of content marketing, you know that 40, those 42% are going to include a huge proportion of content marketing videos, okay? So videos that look high-end, beautiful, stylish uh, documentary even, and you're thinking, I'm watching a free documentary. That's what's cool about the Internet. Stuff's free. But then you start watching, and hmm, that's a curious product placement there. Seems like those shoes are a little too prominent in the screen, and maybe that the subject of this documentary might be enjoying that product a wee bit too much. Mm -hmm. Okay, and suddenly you catch on. You realize you've been watching an 18-minute advertisement. Now, it gets weirder, okay? Now, content marketing has made the leap from the small screen to the big screen. Where? How? The Lego movie. <laughs> Tell me you're not seeing that product on every single shot in every single second of that film being sold to you. It's the perfect seamless move from the small screen, okay, that's the laptop, mobile, to the big screen that is, right, films, right? First run Hollywood movies. And that's nothing but an ad for Legos when we really look at it closely. The greatest parody of that move okay, which is content marketing or product placement in the film industry, is a uh, movie called Palm Wonderful Presents, the greatest movie ever sold by a guy named Morgan Spurlock. Happens to be one of my personal all-time favorite sort of stunt journalist uh, uh, figures out there. He was the guy who was famous for eating too much McDonald's over the course of a month and said, here's what it does to you. Um, it's called Super Size Me. It was one of his big stunts. Um, but Palm Wonderful Presents is a perfect film because, to illustrate my point, because the entire film is funded by product placement. Okay, He solicits and gets people to place their products in his movie from Minnie Cooper to Merrill to, I think Ralph Nader does a spot on it too, but I don't think he paid for it. Um, so all the way across the board, and you see, oh my gosh, he actually funds this entire movie through product placement. To illustrate the point, that that's how Hollywood works. So if we look at movies like uh, Walter Mitty, uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, um, we know that Papa John's is anteing up for this movie. Now, there's not just one spot with a Papa John's product in it, but we're starting to realize that the entire screenplay, okay, the narrative through line of this film is geared around the notion of this pizza, okay, <laughs> that we're supposed to really want to then feel kind of sentimental about even <laughs> as we're watching the movie and then have all of this emotional baggage attached to it. 
so that we'll go out and maybe order uh, some of that while we mm -hmm. are after or during the watching of this, okay? So sea change happening, ad blockers moving to content marketing, um, and we see content marketing sort of going huge with something like Lego Movie, um, but we also see it in that just that huge number of 42% increase of digital video ads. Mm -hmm. um, so you were talking a little bit about newspapers earlier. Sure. But could we talk a minute about online um, articles? You know, it may have originated in a newspaper or it may have started something like the Huffington Post. Um, this, this is big now. I know tons of people who read things like Huffington Post. Uh, they're not paying for it, but they're seeing ads presumably right. on that on that page. Mm -hmm. um, what what is the model by which? I mean, many of us will feel sad when newspapers seem to to be gone altogether. But right. how many of them are making transitions in some sort of new form, either as the newspaper or as a, a sideline with the newspaper into something mm -hmm. that is a that still has journalistic integrity, presumably, sure. or sure. an editorial point of view, but. This is an excellent question, and, and here's how. Just ask, okay? So, so the, the publisher has trouble because so many of us are using ad blockers, and we're smart people. We don't want to be distracted, okay? Nicholas Carr tells us this is what the Internet is doing to your brain, okay? It's distracting it. It's pushing you off into the shallows cognitively. We want to go deep, right? We want to immerse ourselves in this great depth journalism that's out there. And yes, there's wonderful journalism out there. Out there. How do we do it? We use ad blockers. Okay, partially one, but two, we also go to mobile. Okay, And on the tablet, we can have that immersive kind of experience too. But I think more importantly, what is the publisher going to do? And here's our question. They can just simply ask, as Forbes did, for example, ask the viewer, ask the user, will you please turn off your ad blockers? But wait, what gives me incentive to turn off my ad blockers, Mr. Publisher here at Forbes? Forbes comes back and says, I will give you an ad light experience if you turn off your ad blockers. And they do, and they did in 2015. They were able to monetize 42% uh, of people they found turned off their ad blockers when simply request requested and when offered an ad light experience. This offered $15 million in ad impressions then uh, monetized that, uh, that wouldn't have otherwise been uh, uh, monetizable. In other words, that would have been blocked ads. So, you know, it, here's a compromise between, right, trying to go around and hide, right, the advertising as marketing, content marketing and, and native ads, on the one hand, just be transparent. Say, look, ads are going to be here. This is what Forbes has done to great effect. But if you turn off your right machine, we have, we have a way of detecting whether your ad blockers is on or off. Mm -hmm. If it's off, we'll clean up some of our display ads so we don't give you that annoying pop-up or the banner over here that's moving or whatever so that you have a more immersive experience. And as such, I think that's the way forward. Mm -hmm. Now I can go to Forbes and really get that quality journalism if I want it. If I'm reading a story about a Mercedes-Benz or something in Forbes, though, I'm not guaranteed that that is not one giant ad for Mercedes-Benz. And in fact, Forbes is notorious for having created something called um, the uh, native ad, uh, sorry, the Forbes brand voice, which was their native ad campaign. Um, in 2010, and they were the, one of the first 
to innovate this, Forbes being Forbes, right, they're always uh, looking at new ways of finding capital. They have a nose for gold, as Washington mm -hmm. Irving used to say. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, um, we're coming up on the end of the show here. I wonder if I could ask both of you, or Jenna, start with you. Uh, has there ever been anything like what we see now with this Twitter sphere, with everybody and his brother popping in with something to say, it doesn't matter whether it's civil or decent or true or whatever. Have we ever seen anything like that in communication before? Yes and no. Mm. Um, we've certainly had um, forums where people could speak to each other. You know, this is um, uh, famously Jürgen Habermas, you know, thought this happened in the salons, that there was mm. a space where people could share their thoughts about politics um, and daily life. Mm -hmm. um, but has it ever been this accessible? Has it ever perhaps been this banal? <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I think it's dangerous, though, to assume that we are on the brink of the really new now, because mm -hmm. we've thought that for mm -hmm. centuries, mm -hmm. that this technology gives us the really new. Mm -hmm. um, and yet what we find is with these really new technologies, the same old problems with communications, misunderstandings, um, misconceptions, missed connections, happen no matter what the technology seems to be. I think it has to do with what we don't see. Um, and, and there's so much that we don't see. And one, one is uh, Wikipedia. Um, we think that Wikipedia is this reflection of all the knowledge of all of us, you know, as a civilization put together. It isn't. Wikipedia uh, pages are made, 90% of which are made by males. Okay, so men typically be between the ages of the mid-20s and mid-30s, uh, most of whom are single. This is not, and most of whom are white, this is not representative of anything remotely close to a democratic society. Wikipedia has a major PR fiasco on their hands. Why? Because this is the number one source of knowledge in the world, period, bar none. Um, we don't go to print encyclopedias anymore. We don't go to any other encyclopedias anymore. We go to that. Now, if, if that's only made by men, or now almost exclusively, what do we do? They actually have a Wikipedia page called Gender Bias on Wikipedia. Wikipedia does, to address this. So you can see all of, you can pull that up right now, you know, and see the, the pie chart and the sort of tale of woe that Wikipedia has had to deal with um, and, you know, try to counter it and to try to understand why, the whys and the wherefores, what's alienating women from creating pages online, and how can we encourage them to do more so that we can balance the scale and make knowledge more reflective. If men are creating this, then, then that's masculinized knowledge in some way or another. You know, we haven't de determined it yet, and I think this, is, this gets into the ideas of the perils of technology. You know, at one point, utopians were lauding Wikipedia as just, hey, th this is it, for us, by us knowledge. And we can be self-correcting and self-policing trouble. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Wow, well, thank you so much. A great start to our program today. You've been listening to David Dowling and Jenna Sub Montgomery, and uh, I hope all of you will stay with us for the second part of this program. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Uh, I'm Joan Kerr, and for University of Iowa International Programs, thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of a three-part series called Encountering New Technology. 
We'll be discussing the material lives of technology in this segment and asking whether these technologies are more than tools. For example, how does their presence, even when not in use, shape the world around us? What kinds of social value get activated through these technological objects? And when comparing personal communication and computer-mediated communication, what's the same and what's different? We have a couple of great guests with us. Uh, Andrew High is just to my left. He's an assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Communication Studies. So thank you, Andy, for being here. Pleasure. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Juan Pablo Orcad, associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of Computer Science. So thank, thank you, John. You. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm. So Andy, um, could you give us a little background on your research into interpersonal communication and computer-mediated communication? What are we talking about Absolutely. There? So I, I have two sort of branches of research broadly under the domain of interpersonal communication, which is simply how it could be two people or a small group of people interact, how they converse, and things like that. Specifically, a lot of my research focuses on the idea of supportive communication or comforting. Right? So when someone is experiencing a stressor in their life, which could range from you know, ending a relationship to dealing with a medical issue to um, you know, just having a, a rough day in some mm -hmm. cases. Um, what are the messages, what are the dynamics of that interaction that help people sort of provide support or let everybody know that it'll be okay or, or you know, to, to improve people's emotional reaction to an event. And specifically, I look at how that's done online. So if we take a similar conversation uh, and we compare it to what happens if it happens face-to-face -face or what happens online, how does that channel variable, how does taking it online and using the features or affordances of Internet-based technology how does that change the dynamics of the interaction? What people think of the person they're talking to, what they think of the messages they get, and generally how are their outcomes different mm -hmm. when it happens online? Yeah. So what are your, some of your top line findings? Sure. Well, support is, is a, it's a gendered activity, mm -hmm. right? And to be a good support provider, you need to speak in what's traditionally a feminine sort of style. Um, if you, and people prefer messages that generally sound like they're coming from a female. So mm -hmm. if you, and if you attribute the exact same message to a male in one case and a female in the other case, people will like the message better when it comes from the female. Hmm. Um, also, men and women tend to excel in contexts that match their gender orientation. So people think that comfort is a gendered activity, so people generally think females do a better job. They would prefer to have those interactions. It's not a very macho thing, especially if you have two men in an interaction, to get together and provide comfort to that person. And a lot of it is based on sort of the gender norms and expectations. So one of the things I looked at was what happens if you, if you took the face-to-face -face aspect of way, away and put people online, right? And so it, we did one project where we had people, uh, again, just sort of a, a personal sort of stressor that ranged from, you know, uh, you know, people could pick what was going on, a death in the family to a, uh, you know, to a struggle at work or something like that. And we had people talk about it. And we had similar people pick similar problems, and we had them use just a, an instant messenger type program, a synchronous text-based program. And we found that especially for males, when a male provided support to another male or a female, they did better when they were online, right? It sort of took away some of the pressure of having to uh, you know, uphold that masculine identity. They could be more sensitive. They were thought to be more supportive. Um, and they were thought to be just better comforters when they interacted online. And these, we, had, we got these findings immediately after the interaction. And then we recontacted people about a month later. And we, those findings persisted. When people talked to males online, they thought that the interaction was better. They thought that they were a better support provider three weeks later so to a month later still. So they're, they're persistent effects. You know, we also look at how people 
uh, are able to access different networks with something like Facebook, right? One of the great things about social networking sites is that they allow you to contact people who you might not normally have access to face-to-face. -face. In fact, Jenna mentioned something like that earlier, right? We're connected to our, 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 you know, our strong ties, the people that we're very close with, our friends and family, because we maintain friendships with them on social networking sites. But we also have access to a whole network of weak ties. These could be people from high school, uh, you know, other places that we live, jobs that we used to have, but we don't see on a regular basis. Right? And these people can provide us comfort, because if you broadcast a message out there, everyone has access to it all of a sudden. And we find that, yes, that, that using a site like Facebook lets you receive several different types of support because of the connections you maintain. But really, the different types of connections you maintain provide you with different types of support or resources. So for example, if you're someone who happens to create a network on a social networking site that creates a lot of these weak tie relationships to friends from high school or, or uh, you know, old, old jobs or something like that, you tend to receive a lot of information from your Facebook feed. So if you post a problem out there, you'll get a lot of advice or perspective about what to do. And one of the things that we really like about these weak tie sources is that they're pretty good sources of information. They're objective. They bring to us a bunch of resources that we don't have access to in our normal, in our normal lives. Um, and lastly, they're very convenient because we don't feel obligated to reciprocate support to them. Right? We can have a, a, a comforting remark from someone who we don't know that well. And unlike somebody, a close friend or family member, we don't have to get back to them. We don't have to pay them back. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's a matter of it, it, it changes the way we provide support. It changes the people from whom we get support. Um, and the different features or affordances of technologies can really just alter the processes of what we're doing when we're seeking comfort from a friend, receiving a message from a mm -hmm. friend. So, so that's a lot of good stuff, it seems to me. What, what are some of the bad side effects of, sure. of sort of living online and never talking to real people? Sure. And my research is, you know, my thinking is, I guess I need something happy to think about, is biased on, on terms of the good things that, mm -hmm. that we get from using the Internet. Um, but in several studies, um, there are bad things, right? People, people talk about negative implications of using the Internet. Um, for example, in the study that I, I talked about earlier where we had men provide support online and face-to-face, -face, men did better online. If you ask females to provide support online or face-to-face, -face, especially in an interaction with another female, they did much worse when they were online. They didn't like being online. Hmm. Uh, and so we tried to think about why that might be. We know that generally females are better nonverbal communicators than men are. They're more expressive nonverbally. They're more comfortable using nonverbals. And so if you take women and put them in a channel that strips away a lot of that nonverbal communication, then they're all of a sudden, you know, maybe handicapped in a way that they're not, that they're much better than men uh, in a face-to-face -face relationship. Um, you know, and certainly also, it, it can be hard to verify the credibility of information that you get online. You know, support groups are wonderful things. They're bringing together um, people from, from all over the world uh, and establishing really meaningful, deep, important associations with one another. Um, but they don't know each other, and we're not sure if the information is credible. Um, and a lot of the things that you read on the Internet, you know, the classic example is something like WebMD. You're not feeling very well, you type your symptoms into WebMD, and within minutes you can convince yourself that you have some terrible tumor or cancer, <laughs> right? It's not. It just comes off as much worse, right? And so we, people put a lot of stock and a lot of value just because it's on the Internet must be true. Is, is not the case at all. These are people's experiences. We have to think of who's contributing to a support group. It's generally people who have a really bad experience with something because they're looking for others who need help. 
Um, and so we, we need to really evaluate the credibility of information. That can certainly um, be a negative thing that goes along with it. Would you say there's anything that's really surprised you when you've been researching this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a fascinating area. I mean, it's what I do, so I guess I'm, I'm a little bit biased <laughs> that way. Um, but yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of surprising things. Just, just the way you can take um, the same exact message and add, let's say, you know, for, you know, let's say we'll go to texting because I've talked about a lot of other environments. We text somebody a message, one same message the second time you add an emoticon to it. Just how it shapes the whole message, and people get a very different. Um, impression of who you are as a communicator, what the message means to you, simply by adding that one little thing. And for me, the, the, the study of this area is to, to identify not just, you know, compare the Internet to face-to-face, even though those are the examples I've used a lot, but realize what is it about the Internet? Um, we're, we're realizing, of course, now that the Internet is not a monolith. It's not one thing. Rather, it's a bunch of different channels. And each of those channels are de- defined by certain features or affordances of those channels. So what is adding those affordances, like an emoticon, like the ability to, in a text message, to reply to someone instantly via, or something like an email where the time is delayed? How do those different variables just totally change the, the, the outcomes, the feelings, the perceptions of really the exact same message? Mm-hmm. So what I think is really interesting is, is how, it, you know, I, I think of technology as a, as a conduit, as a channel. Um, how does that exact same message change shape just by some of the features that come along with mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we've all had the warning. Uh, if you have something to say, you can write that email at night, but don't send it out until the morning when you've Absolutely. read it another time. Yeah. And there are studies that say how quickly you get back to somebody, when that quickness happens, if it's the night or the day, it determines the, how people think of the exact same message. Mm-hmm. So all of these little extra features and cues and dynamics, that they all matter. Yeah. Uh, you know? yeah. So, yeah, I'm someone who <laughs> likes to email at night, and I know a lot of people don't like to get those emails. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, this is really fun. Uh, so, Juan Pablo, tell us a little bit about your research. It's into human and computer interaction, I understand. Yeah, so I work in an interdisciplinary field uh, called human-computer interaction. And if, if you think of traditional computing, a lot of it is about uh, what can, we do, what can uh, computers do? Can we get computers to do more things? In human-computer interaction, to paraphrase Ben Schneiderman, one of the founders of the field, we worry more about what people can do with computers. Uh, so it's really thinking about the human aspects. How can we make interactive technologies useful, usable, and enjoyable for people? And even eventually, how can we uh, improve society through technology and thinking about designing technology with that purpose? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, what do computers, for example, do to our... Um, um, ability to uh, computers or a mobile device where you've stored your phone number, your mother's phone number that you've yeah. known your whole life, mm-hmm. but you can't remember it now because for so long you've been using the automatic dialer. What is it that that um, is revealed to you in the studies you do um, about the changes in human beings related to the way they use these technologies? Yeah, so one of my concerns is that as technologies are taking a more ubiquitous role in our lives, we do need to use them for all kinds of things, right? Uh, we need to u- perhaps use a computer to uh, to vote now. Yeah. We have to use a computer to vote. We have to might use a computer to purchase tickets for public transportation. We might use a computer to get money from the bank or to pay for groceries. Those are really basic things. We might need to use a computer to be well informed, to be uh, good citizens in the world. Uh, it's hard to be to say we have a true freedom of expression these days, or or 
that we are going to be hurt by a lot of people if we don't, we're not able to use computers. So I think computers are getting, becoming essential for exercising our basic rights and fulfilling our basic needs increasingly. It's been a big change, I would say, the last 20, 30 years. Um, so as someone, I'm, a, I'm the Department of Computer Science, I'm a computer scientist by training, I think we have an extra responsibility when we design technologies to truly first make them accessible for everyone and making sure that they can serve different sectors of society equally well. Uh, but we also have to uh, start thinking about how computers may be changing our basic cognitive processes, the things that go on, on, on in our minds. Uh, they're changing what and how we perceive the world. Um, they're changing uh, what we pay attention to and who we pay attention to and, and how we do that. As you mentioned, they're changing the things we need to remember and how we remember them. Mm -hmm. uh, they're even changing the way we make decisions and reason about problems. Um, and as, the design, as we design technologies and we're changing those processes, I think one challenge we have is that by and large, Silicon Valley and companies, we're, we're designing the next technology that the market calls for. Not so much, we're not thinking about how we're changing all those things. So one thing that I, I tell my colleagues sometimes is maybe we should think about what if we could give people cognitive superpowers, super perception, super memory, super attention. Uh, how would we want, what would those powers look like? Uh, how, what do we want to change about how we perceive, what we remember, what we pay attention to, to make society a better place, to improve things for everyone? Uh, and these are difficult questions, but we need to ask those questions and we need to think about them as we design technologies. Mm -hmm. You, you touched on this a little bit, but one of the things I know I and, and lots of other people are concerned about is the divide between rich and poor, um, developed nations and underdeveloped nations, the, the you know, ubiquity of some of these things in a culture like ours among people of a certain income level mm -hmm. and within the public schools even. You know, kids are exposed to these little tablets and laptops and whatnot, but in so many other places they're not. Um, that's social policy, and I know that it's not up to the two of you guys to define the social policy, but, but uh, yeah, but, but uh, I mean, what are the challenges for a culture or a society to face that inequity? Yeah, so I think um, that uh, challenge has changed a little bit in ways that we're talking about perhaps some unexpected things. This is something that's changed in a way that I didn't expect. Uh, right now, believe it or not, and this is... According to the United Nations, six out of seven people in the world have access to mobile phones. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they own one, but they, they need to get one, access to one they can. Half the world's population has access to the internet. So this mm -hmm. is, it's moving a lot faster than we thought. Um, we're still going to have political barriers, right? So other than that, I would say, you know, 10, 15 years, you could get to the point where easily 90% of the world population could get any piece of information anytime, anywhere, or connect with anybody anytime, mm -hmm. anywhere. There might still be political barriers. The other barriers that we have in terms of serving everyone is that the things that we're building are typically for serving the realities of a particular demographic. So yesterday I was visiting Minneapolis, wonderful city. Uh, if I wanted to find 
uh, fine restaurant to dine there, there's an app for that. <laughs> uh, now, if I'm a low-income person in Minneapolis and I have $30 to feed my family this weekend and I want to find the most nutritious food I can get with that money and I don't have a car to drive somewhere, yeah. there's not an app for that, mm. right? So even if you have access to the technology, there may not be access to the services that matter to your reality. Uh, and that's one of the challenges we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll go to you for this one. For sure. Actually, to, to both of you, I'm sure you've encountered this, but it seems to me that, um, well, I think most of us know that wherever we go, at least in a city, a fairly large city, say you're in New York City, you know that stores have cameras that are watching what goes on inside the store. We know that streets have cameras, street light cameras in, in various cities around the country. We're, we're sort of always being watched in a way. Mm-hmm. And everyone is cautioned that anything you write on email could end up on the front page of the perhaps non-existent newspaper. Uh, so, so, you know, we, we know about these things. Mm-hmm. And the assumption I might make is that people are somehow guarding themselves or watching themselves a little bit more carefully because they know that there's a camera in the hotel or just whatever it is. Is that true? Are people sort of changing their behaviors because they know that there are monitors everywhere these days? I'm not sure there's evidence of that, but it, I think it, it, that question speaks to attention that we have in the, the development of technology. Mm-hmm. In this one, it, is, it does go down to public policy eventually. And it's whether we have control over our data, over data mm-hmm. information about us or not, or mm-hmm. is someone else under controlling it right. uh, for their purposes uh, instead of us. And I think I see a bigger challenge for uh, younger generations. So we look at children these days, even things that they do every day at school are getting recorded. Their behavior at school on a daily basis mm-hmm. is getting recorded. So they can go back, you know, when they're 40-some years old, they can go back and find out, oh, what was I doing this day, and did I behave well in school, and what grade did I get? I, mm-hmm. I can't do that. Um, it's all this information that's out there. Uh, it's getting recorded. Everybody, a lot of companies even are recording lots of information, mm-hmm. uh, and we have a new fields of analytics out there that work because everybody's accumulating data they don't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, I think, to make things, this is just an opinion, I would argue that we need to be in control of our data unless there's a pretty good reason for us not to be in control of it. Mm-hmm. So you could say, well, criminal records, maybe mm-hmm. uh, some financial information, if you want to apply for credit, maybe some of that in a controlled way needs to be shared. Everything else, I should have control over who owns it and what they can do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you think about this in your research as well, Andy? Yeah, you know, I think it's a double-edged sword. I, I think that it is a concern that people are wary of of constantly being watched, and I think there's good reason to do that. I, you know, I listen to Edward Snowden can you know make that point very clearly. Um, but at the other edge of the sword is that people are growing up with these things, mm-hmm. and they're growing up with just the ease of access, the the norms of of putting yourself out there and communicating with other people. Because I would. You know, I hate to ever get us in a situation where people aren't saying things mm-hmm. or aren't being themselves just because they're, they're afraid of, uh, of what might happen to them. And, you know, just the, the more constant connectivity we have, the more the technology is around us, the more people are going to be using it. And it's going to be difficult for them to say no because they're concerned about 
data loss or something like that because they're simply just needed for everything. Mm -hmm. And you know, the other, the other matter is, you know, that Juan Pablo was bringing up is, is choice. And sometimes you have no choice about whether yourself is, yourself is out there. I think, you know, in multiple levels, I, I know a lot of children who are, you know, well below the age to make the conscious decision of do I want a social media presence and have a social media presence. I think that's fine a lot of times, but you know, maybe the kid will grow up down and say, I wish you wouldn't have posted that picture about me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't think we, we need to get to a state of paranoia where we need to be worried about dangers or anything like that, but you do have to think how much information people are putting out there. And it, you know, it's not just you know, parents with children, but it's also tagging a friend in a Facebook post, right? This is really important for students who might be worried about getting a job, right? You might be at a party, you might be underage, you might have decided to have something to drink and a friend tagged you in a picture. Well, now that picture's on your Facebook page and we know that uh, companies, employers, job seekers are, are surveilling these pages mm -hmm. to, to find information about people. Um, and so it, even though you might not be putting that information out there, you lose control over it just when somebody happens to have a camera with them at a party. And, and that's a... Mm -hmm. That's a serious thing, and I think it's a conversation people need to have with their friends and family in terms of what are you doing with information about me? Because um, it should ultimately be in our mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you do within your field um, as you look at this human computer interaction? Yeah, there are, I suppose, people on sort of ethical boards are sort of mm -hmm. approaching some of these conversations we're having today, um, concerned about. I mean, yeah, they want to build the next cool thing, but but also, what should the limits be of of either what we develop or how we encourage people to think about this new tool. Yeah, I think there's, there's a group of people who try to bring awareness to these issues. It's obviously a field where novelty yeah. uh, is valued quite a bit, and it's always, well, what's the next cool thing that we can build, and there's mm -hmm. a race to, to put that together. At the same time, there's been people working for many years on, on trying to specifically design technologies for uh, higher level purposes, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. you know, helping with disaster aid, uh, helping yeah. with sustainability, uh, trying to reduce conflict, um, working in education, so there's working in medicine. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, obviously, mm -hmm. work that's, that tries to go in, in directions that at least are socially acceptable as being uh, leading to positive uh, yeah. uh, ways in society. Yeah. Uh, anything else you guys want to say about your own research? Something you're doing that 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 you'd like to share with this audience? Something that they might be interested in? Um, you know, next next steps for me are, are to really, like I was getting at, really looking at the the different variables that are related to a channel and and how they influence what we're mm -hmm. doing. So I'm. Uh, uh, collecting data with some students now where we're looking at people seeking help on Facebook. Uh, and we looked at both what they're saying, do you come out and say you need help or do you hide it because you know, there's a norm suggesting you shouldn't come out and say it. Does the picture you have while you're saying it matter? The profile picture, does the use of a status update that says the relationship ended versus not, does that matter the help you get? Yeah. And so it's you know, just again, really further understanding, understanding um, what are those variables that influence outcomes? And then being able to take that and, and to let users know these are things that might help you in mm -hmm. your daily basis. If you use the channel without thinking about it, you'll get a, an effect. But instead, if you think about what you're doing and, and tweak these features accordingly, you might have a better outcome mm -hmm. than you otherwise would. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll mention one more aspect that we didn't quite touch upon, uh, which is what I would call information and personal connection bubbles. Um, yeah. And uh, 
With uh, newer technologies, there's a, there's a big emphasis on personalization. So uh, the Facebook that you see is now the same one that I see, right? It's personalized to, to our likes. Uh, and what a lot of companies are finding out is uh, if uh, you get to confirm their bias, your people's biases. So uh, you're more likely to keep using their product. So uh, every time you open the app, it tells you, well, you know, it turns out you were always right about your political opinion. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and your sports team is the best one all around. Uh, <laughs> so if you get that feedback, it's like you, you just want to go back there. You don't want to go to the, see mm -hmm. some contrarian information. Uh, and it's the same thing with people. You know, it's like, well, the people who post things that I like to read, yeah. I'm going to pay attention to them. The other ones that keep posting the, something about that politician I don't like, let's uh, remove them from the feed. And what that gets us is it gives us a very biased view of the world. Uh, and it can, uh, that can have negative effects on how we use our intuition to make decisions because we have a very biased sample of experiences. Yeah. Wow, so interesting, you guys. Thank you so much. Andy High and Juan Pablo Orcad were our guests in this segment. Thank you for being here. And I hope you all stay with us for the third segment in this uh, program. And um, this, once again, is World Canvas. And all of our programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to check out Film Scene, go to icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr, and thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. Happy to have you join us for part three of this series, in which we focus on technology, cultural production, and globalization. My guests in this segment are Brian Eckdale, assistant professor in the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thank you, Joan. Mm -hmm. And joining us is uh, Jenna Sup Montgomery, an assistant professor with a joint appointment in the University of Iowa Department of Religious Studies and the Department of Communication Studies. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this segment, Brian, I'd like to have you launch off the discussion, if you don't mind, by reflecting on a question you posed in a piece you wrote for the Press Citizen a couple of days ago, where you asked, is the computer, the internet, friend or foe? Um, sure. So I should start off the response to that saying, you know, it's in a couple hundred words, I tried to pose uh, uh, maybe a bit of a straw man argument with two polar positions. So um, I'll take the time here to maybe tease that out a little bit more. So the, the, one of the ways I was setting that up, when we think about new technologies, we can think about them as um, having a lot of power and a lot of determining factor on how they're adopted, how they're used. And this is often referred to as a technological determinist approach in which technology is very strong and comes in and changes society for the better or for worse. Um, another polar way to view this is a social construct constructivist view in which people have the power and they are the ones who are creating the technologies. And so their beliefs, their culture, their ideas go into that technology. And then when the technology comes out in the public, it's people who make choices about how that technology is used. In sometimes very expected ways um, that the designers intended, and sometimes very unexpected ways that the designers didn't intend or didn't even consider. Um, I would actually say, you know, there's plenty of middle ground in there. And I would say I tend to view things more on the social constructivist side, but um, I tend to, to kind of adopt a point of view that somewhat in the middle, um, earlier Andy referred to affordances, and I think that that's one way that we can think about kind of the relationship between technology and people and who has the power. And 
one way to think about affordances in a very simplistic way is to think that they have features. But what affordances really mean is um, action possibilities. It's something that can be done with a device or a technology. And so if we think about uh, as simple as a pencil, right? An affordance of a pencil is that it's writable. I'm able to write with a pencil. An affordance of a pencil is also that it's stabbable. I'm able to take a pencil and stab you in the eye with it, right? It's not what it's intended for. It's not what it's designed for. But it's an action possibility. It allows for that use. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's one way to think about technology in which the technology itself bounds what can be done by it. But in the end, it's people who decide what is done. And so it's not that I can take a pencil and suddenly fly with it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not an affordance of a pencil but I have a lot of creativity and power when I'm using that device. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one way to think of it. I, I don't know if I maybe bring Jenna in mm -hmm. here too. I know Jenna is interested in actor network theory, which is another way to think about this relationship. So. Yeah, I thought we'd disagree more and we could have some fun hashing oh. it out, but I suspect <laughs> we actually align pretty well. Um, one of the perspectives I use in my own research is the idea that when we're thinking about technology and human actors coming together, it can be very dangerous to set up too firm of a boundary between animate and inanimate objects because it implies on some level that the inanimate objects can't do anything. They're not agents in any way. Um, but we all know that depending on what chair we're sitting in, we'll sit with a different posture, um, that our bodies actually take on the marks of the tools we use. So that very pencil that I'm now nervous about giving to you. Um, <laughs> if we write with a pencil regularly, we'll get a callus on our finger. That pencil will actually act on us in a way. And so um, when we look at moments of um, social and technological change, it can be helpful to think about what um, Bruno Latour calls um, human and non-human actors working together to create some sort of new condition for society. So I guess the question, internet yeah. friend or foe, yeah. I, Confusing, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the way I answered in the article, you know, having more leanings towards social constructivists is thinking about our, let's not think about the device, let's think about the people mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. they use the device. So if we look at something like Yik Yak and we say Yik Yak is bad because of how much racism is on Yik Yak, say people are racist and they're using this device to express yeah. their racist views. Right. So that's, that would be more my approach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, we were also in this segment really going to try to talk a little bit about globalization of uh, technologies, how things move from one culture to another. And is it, do they move uniformly? Are they received in the same way in various parts of the world? I suspect not. Yeah. And, and so my, I do global digital research and um, my area of interest is in Africa and in Kenya mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'll probably refer to for mm -hmm. a lot of my examples. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, as technology moves around, you know, again, coming from a point of view that people have the power to adopt and adapt and use technology in a way that's appropriate for them and for mm -hmm. their interests and for their culture and for their society, right? People use it in ways that can be new and unexpected. And um, so I'm trying to think of some examples. Um, for example, um, we've done some research with a colleague on internet, an internet meme in Kenya. And what we found um, in, I should say we as the academ academia, has found in, in scholarship about memes in the U.S. is oftentimes they're, they're somewhat cynical. Um, they're often making fun of the target, mm -hmm. um, you know, whoever is being memed upon or they're copycatting or some way. What we found in our research, we found a meme in Kenya that was actually very hopeful. Um, and it, it was much more a meme of aspiration. They found a music video figure 
um, without getting too much into it, there was a figure, a character in a music video that they then created kind of a series of fantasy videos and jokes and artwork um, that really reflected what their desires were for their nation, but then also how they wanted the rest of the world to see them and how to view them mm -hmm. as a global player that was really kind of emerging into the digital market. Mm -hmm. And so the uses we see in the U.S. aren't necessarily the uses we see in Kenya. And you know, we have some graduate students from China, and the memes that are coming out of China are really interesting as well because they're dealing with an Internet that has a heavy hand of the state in it. So they're trying to figure out clever ways to work around state censorship. So oftentimes there's this kind of um, coded voice of poking fun at the state or poking fun at the control or trying to express creativity that doesn't have to be as coded in maybe um, the American context where you're not as worried about the government taking down your post. Mm -hmm. Some of the research I do is in the spread of technology in the 19th century. And um, there, there's a really um, different attitude maybe about technology being um, part, perhaps a vital part of um, one of the primary forms of, of colonialism then, which is Christian mission. And um, in fact, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Mission, which was this kind of big engine of international Protestant mission in the United States in the 19th century, at one point divided mission into five fields. And one was evangelism, but then there was industry. That was a whole field. And for a while, they actually toyed with the idea of setting up communities all around the world that would have blacksmiths and print printers and all of these other things because they thought that if you could pull people into what they termed civilization, a whole set of affiliated practices that had a lot to do with technological innovation, then they would sort of naturally, as a next step, go on to Christianity. The printing press was like the gateway drug to Christianity for them. Um, but what happens, because um, technologies can act on us as much as we can act on them, these technologies did very strange things when they moved across the globe. So, um, for example, um, Britain and France became very interested in spreading the telegraph through the Ottoman Empire um, first because it would allow them to communicate with their troops on the ground in Crimea during the Crimean War, and then later because Britain needed a way to communicate with India. And getting it across the Ottoman Empire would help them do this quickly. And so they um, happily ushered in um, supplies and experts um, and everything else. And they were met there by um, Cyrus Hamlin, an American missionary who was very involved in bringing the telegraph to the sultan. And the Ottoman sultan at the time, Abdul Mejid, thought this was a very good idea because it would allow him to communicate with a very vast empire very quickly. And so um, the Sultanate was behind it, and they adopted this project of spreading the telegraph through Turkey with help from um, these American missionaries and lots of help from um, England and France. But what happened was people from the far reaches of the Ottoman Empire could also very quickly communicate their complaints to the Sultan. <laughs> and ultimately, the telegraph network became a really important part of how the Sultanate was overthrown um, and um, the... Um, and Ataturk rose to power. So it actually, although it looked like it was going to consolidate the empire and further the work of Christian mission and colonialism, it became part of perhaps the opposite effect. Yeah, wow. Well, I, I knowing that you're in religious studies and also communications, I wonder if we could just divert a little bit of our attention from the computer and, and turn to television. And I don't know if any of your research has involved um, televangelists and the spread of certain kinds of religion through... The internet. Have you worked on that at all, or have you, Brian? I, no, I haven't. 
Um, I haven't particularly, although this is a place where religion is notoriously one of the early adopters of certain technologies because they can integrate it into certain forms of, especially in evangelical worship, certain forms of worship and certain forms of vandalism. But it often comes with this concern that adopting these new technologies may not simply spread their message out into the world, but also make the messages of the world accessible to their mm -hmm. members. So mm -hmm. it always comes with a dance of adopting and limiting or negotiating yeah. these new technologies. Yeah. If you want to study technology, probably the two fields that will help you understand the history of technology best would be religion and pornography. And those are just the primary drivers of technology, right? Anytime <laughs> there's a new technology, there are people figuring out, how do I get sex out to more people? Or how do people get access to sexual mm -hmm. images? And then there's people on the religious side that are figuring out, how do I get my you know, religious mm -hmm. message out mm -hmm. to the public. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> um, so, Brian, uh, you, told sure. me, you, you told me before we met today that you and some other UI colleagues are working on a bias algorithm? Oh, we're, we're not necessarily creating an algorithm, mm -hmm. but we're, we're interested in looking at um, ways in which algorithms are biased. Mm -hmm. And so Andy, who spoke earlier, and, and mm -hmm. I are part of this group with some other colleagues in communication studies and computer science. And so one of the things we're interested in, so let me step back a bit and just say at a basic level what an algorithm is, mm -hmm. right? So what an algorithm does is it takes some kind of input, it plays with it, and it presents an output. And probably the most common algorithm people experience in the digital age is their Facebook newsfeed, mm -hmm. right? So Facebook looks and says, you have X number of friends and they do a Y number of activities, which means that Facebook could present you with a ton of different things. Mm -hmm. But it knows that that experience will be overwhelming. So it filters through all of the things that are available and it presents you with the top 20 things that it thinks mm -hmm. you would like mm -hmm. when you log on to Facebook. Well, one of the things we're interested in is Facebook and Google. How did they come up with these algorithms, or what are the results of that, and what are some um, implications of it? And, and um, Juan Pablo talked about this as well. You know, there's certain people from, you know, uh, who study politics who are interested in saying, if you go on Facebook and you're only exposed to views that align with your own political view, mm -hmm. that has an effect on political culture. I think people who study um, social relationships and study cultural relationships mm -hmm. and say, if you go on Facebook and you're only exposed to people who have your own background, your own racial background, your own you know, sense of gender identity, mm -hmm. your own age, right, your own income level, that's going to shape your relationship with the world. And so one of the things we're trying to do when we're you know, very in the early stages is just trying to figure out, okay, let's test how some of these algorithms act in different environments mm -hmm. and you know, what are some of the results of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, could we talk a little bit about the internet and thinking globally here, uh, youth activism. Uh, from whatever angle you'd be interested in discussing it, you know, maybe we could talk about Kenya, what you, what you know there, and whether the internet has in any way affected youth movements in Africa. Sure, so, so digital technology affords um, easy production and distribution, easier than was available earlier. Certainly, you know, as a historian can tell us, people were always speaking back, right? It wasn't always a one-way conversation, mm -hmm. but um, we're increasingly moving from a broadcast era of communication to a networked era of communication, mm -hmm. where more and more people have access to larger and larger audiences. And some of the earliest adopters of this are young people and young people around the world. And so we have kind of a growing 
global cosmopolitan class that is particularly savvy with digital technologies and is capable of speaking to each other, but also speaking to a global audience. Um, and, and I haven't done you know, research into the Arab Spring, right? So I won't speak about that, but you know, we see a lot of that voice was coming from young people. Now the Arab Spring, what we see you know, happening on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and the moments that were happening in 2011, was on the backs of a long history of kind of youth dissent and, mm -hmm. and dissent movement going on. But for, for example, in Kenya, um, my dissertation research, what I was studying was um, organizations working in Nairobi slums that were training youth in video production. Mm -hmm. And so um, young people were using cameras either to tell short news stories about what was happening in their community or short fictional stories about things that you know, they were coming up with creatively. That's not something that is, I mean, was, it's possible, but it's not very feasible 20, 30 years ago if we're talking about film cameras, if we're talking about film stock, mm -hmm. if we're talking about um, you know, developing that stock, if we're trying to find some kind of distribution platform. Right. It's just not possible. Right. And so certainly digital media provides outlets that weren't available before, whether it's creating videos or producing a tweet, producing mm -hmm. 140 mm -hmm. characters mm -hmm. that you can get out and you can feel like you can express your voice out yeah. into an audience. Mm -hmm. Now that's still uneven. Just because there are more content producers doesn't mean that their content is play, has equal footing right. with the major power players. And um, so, you know, you know so for example, these organizations that worked in the slum, one of the things that the young um, kind of video producers were trying to do was trying to tell stories that weren't being told in the majority of news coverage about their community, mm -hmm. saying, look at all these positive things that are going on, look at all these other kind of more interesting and complicated stories that are being told. And that's really important and that's really valuable, but their videos were getting much less hits mm -hmm. than a CNN video that mm -hmm. is really kind of sensationalized about poverty, mm -hmm. right? So the stories are out there and the content is accessible, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's being accessed by right. Uh, an equal footing. Right. Wow. Um, well, as you look back, some of the historical research you've done, have youth generally in history been the early adopters of, of new trends? Gosh, that's a great question. I'm trying to think into these, <laughs> these archives of young, um, young Americans in the 19th century. Um, not always, although sometimes. Um, when I look at, um, for example, um, one of, the, one of the sort of strange groups of people who are really excited about new technologies in the 19th century were um, groups of religious Americans that ranged from fairly mainstream Protestants to um, some of the members of these new religious movements that were erupting in northern New York State, an area that's called the Burned Over District because it was swept by the fire of revivals so many times. And this is the area of the of New York State where we get um, the origins of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Um, we also have the kind of surging of shakers in the United States from this area. Um, there's a very strange and wonderful religious community that I study called the Oneida community. Um, if you peek at the back of your silverware over the next few days, you'll probably see the word Oneida. And um, you may not know that that originated in a, a group of people who considered themselves to be Bible communists. They shared um, profits and labor, and they also were all married to each other. So they have very interesting <laughs> 
perhaps surprising practices. Yeah, that's where your fort came from. Um, they, also, they also developed a, a silverware company to help fund their commune, which had over 300 members at its peak. And they were very excited about new technologies because they thought it would bring the world together into a communal situation. Um, in some cases, there we see the role of youth because um, young people in, inside these communities were advocating for change from within. Um, the young people were also in some ways able to you know, leave uh, their families and go off into the world um, and become um, missionaries. But I don't think it was the era where young people had the kind of voice they do today. I mean, I think in some ways, network technologies that decentralize the source of information facilitate um, or cooperate with the rise of certain kinds of youth empowerment. Although I think it's important to note what Brian said, that that doesn't necessarily change the structure of power. So young people may have been using Facebook very actively in things like the Arab Spring. Um, some of those governments were also using Facebook very actively to identify protesters and arrest them through the face recognition software that was mm -hmm. available to them. So. Um, you know, with these new technologies, we see a kind of negotiation about social power that doesn't necessarily mean we're overturning old systems of power, um, but wrestling with them, maybe. Yeah. And there's, there's a long history of suspicion about new ways of doing things, right? You had a, a great little statement in the piece you wrote for the Press Citizen where you said, so was it Socrates, mm. who was suspicious of writing because he said... Right, he thought that... Um, well, he thought writing would lead to kind of a, a disintegration of our memories. Um, it would lead to forgetfulness, and also writing couldn't couldn't respond to you. That was one of his arguments. Mm -hmm. Like, if you ask the paper a question, will it be able to answer you? Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. so right. So he he was uh, suspicious of writing, and, and I think Jenna and David have done a nice job talking about the mm -hmm. ways in which people who mm -hmm. kind of always react to technology with a certain uh, set of familiar scripts. Yeah. So what we're seeing now is similar scripts. I was listening to um, NPR earlier today, and they were talking about the recent case, the tragic case um, in which uh, a, a teen was um, was lured by two Virginia Tech students and, mm. and, and was killed on a, on a social networking site called Kick. And the conversation was about, what should we do about this Kick? And... I do think that's the wrong question because we've asked that question about Kick, we've asked that question about Yik Yak, we asked that question about Snapchat, we asked that question about Twitter, we asked that question about Facebook, we asked that question about MySpace, we asked that question about Friendster. Everything rock music, right? Yeah, everything <laughs> yeah. new that comes yeah. out, someone does something terrible with it, and and not to diminish the terribleness of it, um, but focusing on the technology as the problem is the mm -hmm. wrong kind of way to look at it. Mm -hmm. But is there any part of the technology? Do we need to think about, should there be any kind of protection or only within the family? Do we look at what our kids are doing online? And, and um, I don't think anybody wants a big brother system where you, know, you have to have what you say online approved by someone. But should there be any standards of, of decency? I mean, I'm talking social policy now. Do you, you guys work with this stuff all the time. You must think about, is it just best to have a completely open system so that whatever gets aired gets aired and we just deal with it as it arises? Or, or should there be some sort of understanding just within a civilization that there are some things you do and some things you don't? You know, I don't know that we've ever had a time when everyone just airs yeah. anything. You yeah. know, there's always an etiquette to communication, um, even if it's not an etiquette that's as strict as we might want it to be. Um, 
no one's posting how lonely and dateless they are every night. You know, there are rules to what you say online and how you present your public persona. Mm -hmm. And um, I think developing a more robust conversation about what that etiquette should be is important. Um, but I don't, I mean, I think like Brian is saying, I don't think it helps to simply say it's the technology and we should yeah. eradicate the technology. I mean, this is the great yeah, irony yeah. of Socrates Phaedrus. It was one of his many prolific <laughs> writings, <laughs> writings, right? You know, and, and I think it's that um, constant sense that we are in tension, in negotiation, mm -hmm. but that the option for eradication is probably yeah. outside our reach, but so is the option for simply a free-for-all. We've never mm -hmm. had that. We always mm -hmm. have an etiquette. Mm -hmm. And I, th I, I don't know if I have data to back this up, but I, I think we're going to see some changes in norms over the next few decades. You know, we're in a presidential season, and you think of how candidates are really nitpicked over to see what they've done in their past. Well, 40 years from now, yeah. who's going to have a clean record, right? We've all posted yeah. so much content and so much data has been kind of stored and shared. We're going to have to change our expectations mm -hmm. for what's okay, right? If we mm -hmm. see a picture of someone drinking, we're going to have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to change kind of our expectations. Otherwise, we're going to live in a very prudish society in mm -hmm. which only those who live off the grid mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. deemed acceptable. And, and yeah. I, so I think that's going to be a conversation that we kind of have to, to mull over over the next 10, 20 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, so interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Brian Eckdale and Janice Montgomery. Uh, thank you very, very much. And thanks to all of you for coming this afternoon and for watching the show. I hope you'll join us at Film Scene uh, next month on March 1st. We'll have another program. It's called Taking It to the Streets, Engagement and the Academy. And that'll be on uh, March 1st here in Film Scene. Uh, information about upcoming shows as well as linked, links to archived programs can be found at international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. Um, I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much, and we hope to see you again. Good night. Mm -hmm.